You're going to love this. Just love it. Clowns to the left, jokers to the right. Welcome to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yep. From Pacifica Radio's 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, KPFK. This is the Bradcast, also heard on 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. Welcome to it. Another action-packed, thrilling adventure as we really, really head into 2016, as Jeb Bush said just moments ago. Uh, what did he say? Very, uh, very much a Bushism. Uh, set. We are 17 months from the time for choosing. <laughs> That's what the brother of the decider said. Uh, as uh, Jeb Bush has finally made it official, finally announced his uh, his campaign for the 2016 Republican nomination, has finally decided to stop flaunting uh, flouting actual federal campaign laws and make it official up till now of course he has been uh, collecting millions of dollars knowing that he's going to run for president but not having to declare those uh getting to ignore any and all election co- uh, campaign finance regulations because he's a bush and you know the laws are for the little people we're going to be talking about that and much more speaking about uh, ignoring campaign finance laws brother uh we're going to be speaking with craig holman from public citizen he's part of a lawsuit that has been ongoing we've talked to craig before there's an ongoing lawsuit trying to get some accountability from the federal elections commission the fec for the 2010 campaign when Karl Rove spent millions and millions of dollars to get Republicans elected and didn't bother to declare his Crossroads GPS outfit as a political action committee, clearly violating the law, in my opinion, Uh, both the uh, spirit and the word of the law, to be frank. But uh, he doesn't care. He's laughing because he's got the FEC in his pocket, as do the Republicans, as does Jeb Bush today knowing that no matter how much he he just scoffed at actual campaign laws in this country by not declaring his candidacy for all these months, by knowing that the Federal Elections Commission, the FEC, is going to do nothing about it because the Republicans have tied it up three to three so that their Republican commissioners on that commission will not vote to take action against anybody. All bets are off this campaign season, but we will get to that in a moment with Craig Holman. 
uh, on Jeb's speech, and we're going to also get to Hillary's speech here. She made her campaign, well, her campaign kickoff speech over the weekend at Roosevelt Island in uh, New York City. But first, this was Jeb uh, speaking to uh, looked like about a thousand supporters, followers gathering at Miami Dade College to announce, yes, he's really, really, truly, truly, yes, finally going to run for the 2016 nomination. The party now in the White House is planning a no suspense primary for a no change election to hold on to power, to slog on with the same agenda under another name. That's our opponent's call to action this time around. That's all they've got left. <laughs> they've offered a progressive agenda that includes everything but progress. What? Really? They're responsible for the slowest economic recovery ever, the biggest debt increases ever, a massive tax increase on the middle class, the relentless buildup of the regulatory state, and the swift, mindless drawdown of a military that was generations in the making. Generations in the destroying under your president. Desi Doyen, I don't see how you can listen to a speech like this today, how anyone, any of his supporters or anybody else can listen to a, a, a speech from Jeb Bush and not be thinking about his brother and the damage that his brother George W. did just eight years ago. I happen to agree with you. I, I, you know, I listen to what he says, and I'm like, wait a second. Do you have amnesia? I mean, seriously, the talking about, you know, the destruction of an army decades in the ma- in the making with the drawdown from Iraq, which his brother George W. Bush signed that treaty that required the the troops to be pulled out of Iraq. I just the it's mind boggling to me how this just keeps getting ignored and the major media lets them well lets these republicans ignore that that crucial fact well i don't know how much they're going to ignore it i don't know how much the american people will ignore it i think you can't listen to a speech like that and hear about the uh you know he's blaming the i guess democrats or hillary clinton or barack obama and hillary clinton for the slowest economic recovery ever, surely people understand by now how Republicans have been blocking any and all uh, you know, initiatives by the president for jobs, uh, jobs bills, and everything else over the past eight years. Surely when they hear the biggest debt increases ever, they think of the, uh, the global economic collapse in 2007. I mean, if there was, uh, you know, the biggest debt increase ever, it's because of the massive amount of spending that was required to keep the global economy from completely collapsing, imploding, closing in on itself. Thanks to the policies of George W. Bush and the George W. Bush presidency. And by the way, not just George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton. Who, uh, who cleared the way for all of that by doing away with uh, Glass-Steagall years earlier and allowing the investment banks to get into this risky business that crashed the economy under Jeb Bush's brother. How can you not think of that when you hear his, uh, hear, hear his remarks? A massive tax increase on the middle class? Well, uh, what? Huh? Really? I mean, you know, this was after years of a massive tax cut on the wealthy that gutted the middle class, that led to the biggest debt and the biggest deficit. You know, you may be in favor of that. One may be in favor of that. But I don't know how you listen to this speech today from Jeb Bush and and not think about that. And then right at the top, uh, he gets to uh, 
he says something like this. The presidency should not be passed on from one liberal to the next. Okay. Fair enough, I guess. Uh, Instead, it should be passed from father to son to brother. From one bush to the next? Because that's what it is. Apparently so. Uh, Here's another clip, again, recalling that his brother was just in the White House in what seems like moments ago. So here's what it comes down to. Our country's on a very bad course. Yes, yes it is. Who put us there? Now, the good news is, uh, while it was, you know, next to complete and utter disaster, it has been on the upswing. Yes, not fast enough. And yes, I would blame that on the Republicans, who clearly stopped progress, did anything they could for the next eight years. I hope that uh, people in America understand that. But when you hear our country is on a very bad course... Uh, boy, this is a moment we could use uh, Ronald Reagan around to say, well, are you better or worse than you were eight years ago? Pretty sure the answer for just about everybody would be, yeah, it's uh, on a bad course, but I sure or it's not on. A, it's not great, but it sure is a hell of a lot better than it was eight years ago, unless you'd like the way it was when George W. Bush left office and left this country in tatters. Here's what Jeb Bush said uh, once again. Every everything I heard in his sentence, in his speech, all I could think about was his brother. We will take Washington, the static capital of this dynamic country, then turn it out of the business of causing problems, and we'll get it back on the on the right side of free enterprise and freedom for all Americans. Okay. So that was Jeb Bush today announcing his uh, his run for the uh, Republican nomination. Uh, he plans to get the country out of the business of causing problems. <laughs> uh, here was one uh, cryptic sentence. He said, what the IRS, EPA, and entire bureaucracy have done with overregulation, now mind you, just mentioning IRS and EPA, those are dog whistles there. What? Oh, the bad government, big, big IRS, evil, EPA, evil. What the IRS, EPA, and entire bureaucracy have done with overregulation, we can undo by an act of Congress and order of the president. Federal regulation has gone far past the consent of the governed. Really? It is time, and this is the part that was the cryptic part, it is time to start making rules for the rule makers. Do you have any idea what that means? I do not. Uh, The only thing I can think of is that it's going to be some sort of requirement of, and I'm just totally making this up, some kind of cost-benefit analysis, because there has been some talk among Republican Party operatives. Well, who are the rule makers? The rule makers would be the agencies that create the rules that sort of protect Ah, public health and environment. Reining in the Reining in the rule makers, the agencies who then, you know, have to set set the rules for, for businesses and then have to enforce those rules, things like, no, you're not allowed to poison the water so the epa who said who makes these rules to how corporations should not poison the water they're they're out of line we need some rules for them yes okay however that whatever shape that may take who knows yeah who knows nobody knows actually uh but uh but we will see i suppose as the campaign goes on he did not give a lot of specifics but that's not unusual in a in a speech like this announcing your uh your running i guess Uh, Although he did say, uh, let's see, when a school is just another dead end, every parent should have the right to send their child to a better school, public, private, or charter. 
This is something, obviously, Republicans have been doing for a long time, trying to privatize our school system. So if you'd like a more privatized school system, Jeb Bush may be the man for you. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get in more. I, well, I guess we'll get in more into what Jeb Bush uh, believes in and what he's calling for in the days ahead. One of 20 candidates uh, potentially running on the Republican side of the ledger. In the meantime, over on the Democratic side of the ledger, Hillary Clinton, who had announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that she would be running, also no surprise there, she gave a uh, a, a crowd to uh, she gave a speech to a, a big crowd of uh, uh, several thousand at Roosevelt Island's Four Freedoms Park in Manhattan, so named for FDR's famous Four Freedoms speech. It was actually his 1941 State of the Union address. His, the Four Freedoms at the time. Do you know what they are, Des? Do you remember them? Oh, if you're I not that old, no, but do you remember old, what they might true. be? Um, I'm gonna just go ahead and let you say them. Okay, freedom of speech, freedom of worship. Freedom from want and freedom from fear, as delivered by Roosevelt at the uh, at the height of the Great Depression, 11 months before the U.S. declared war on Japan in December of 1941. So with that uh, same spirit, said Hillary Clinton, we can win these four fights. And she she outlined her four fights as she saw them uh, that she's going to carry out in her candidacy and in her presidency. A fight, uh, she says, we can build an economy where hard work is recorded, uh, rewarded. So that's her first fight, is for the economy. Uh, the second fight was is to strengthen our families. Four fights for you. Her third fight, to defend our country and increase our opportunities all over the world, she said. And then finally... Her fourth fight to renew the promise of our democracy. And uh, you'll be shocked to learn for those who know Brad, Brad, bradblog.com and who, to know the Bradcast. That's the one we're going to focus on today, at least for the moment. Here was Hillary Clinton over the weekend giving her speech to uh, her kickoff campaign event uh, to uh, many uh, enthused folks out there on Roosevelt Island. Speaking about democracy and her plans to overcome Citizens United with a, a constitutional amendment and uh, something she's been speaking about lately, the right to the expanded right to vote. We have to win the fourth fight, reforming our government and revitalizing our democracy so that it works for everyday Americans. <laughs> We have to stop the endless flow of secret, unaccountable money that is distorting our elections, corrupting our political process, and drowning out the voices of our people. We need justices on the Supreme Court who will protect every citizen's right to vote. Rather than every corporation's right to buy elections. If necessary, I will support a constitutional amendment to undo the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United. I want to make it easier for every citizen to vote. That's why I've proposed universal automatic registration and expanded early voting. 
fight back against Republican efforts to disempower and disenfranchise young people, poor people, people with disabilities, and people of color. What part of democracy are they afraid of? Oh, yeah. She loves that line. Uh, what part of democracy are they afraid of? Uh, she also went on uh, to say, actually, in the very next speech, in the in line, and this is something I've been saying for years, you know, it's not enough to go out there and beat the crap out of Republicans. Yeah, Republicans are terrible. But you also have to give Americans something to vote for, which is decidedly what, Repo what Democrats did not do in 2014. They thought it would be enough just to try to scare people into, hey, if you don't vote for us, you're going to get Republicans. No, it's not enough. You got to you got to give that give them something to vote for, which Hillary said uh, word for word, I'm happy to say. But no matter how easy we make it to vote, we still have to give Americans something worth voting for. And she went on to outline what she felt was the reason that uh, voting for her was a reason, uh, something to vote for. But I want to focus for the moment on her call to, quote, stop the endless flow of secret, unaccountable money that is distorting our elections, corrupting our political process, and drowning out the voices of our people. She is, of course, absolutely right. She said she would support, if necessary, a constitutional amendment to undo the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United. Well, that would be nice. But in fact, even if you undid that decision in Citizens United by the Supreme Court, it still would not stop the endless flow of secret, unaccountable money that is distorting our elections, corrupting our political process, and drowning out the voices of our people. For that, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Craig Holman of Public Citizen to let you know, to give you an update on the case that is trying to actually do that. Yes, there are still campaign finance laws that are on the books and that can be, can be enforced, but if the FEC won't enforce them, no, uh, no constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United is going to change that unaccountable flow of money. A quick break, and we are back with Craig Holman on this case against Karl Rove and much more. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is U.S. Postal Worker Doug Hughes. I'm the guy who flew the gyrocopter onto the lawn of the U.S. Capitol building to bring attention to the need for campaign finance reform. And you're listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com here with you. We were talking in the last segment about Hillary Clinton's uh, speech over the weekend, her uh, introductory rally, I guess we can call it, and her call for a uh, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would overturn the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United. Now, uh, in Citizens United, in theory, and I think this is something that people don't understand about Citizens United, in in the Citizens United the- uh, uh, decision, in theory, the Supreme Court actually contemplated that all of this corporate spending, all of this corporate money in elections wouldn't be a problem because the disclosure of that money would be a check and balance on it. In other words, if uh, some corporation gave a whole lot of money, people would see that and they would say, oh, we don't want to do business with that corporation anymore. But what it seems that they didn't contemplate was guys like Karl Roves, who came up with the clever idea of creating a 501c4, a nonprofit organization, a so-called social welfare organization, to essentially hide those huge corporate donations, since 501c4 uh, organizations don't need to uh, disclose their donors, at least not immediately. Well, Karl Rove came up with that scheme back in 2010, just after the Supreme Court came out with their Citizens United decision. He figured out a way to hide those donations, and all of a sudden the money started flowing in before the uh, 2010 elections. A complaint was filed uh, by a group uh, called ProtectOurElections.org, and full disclosure, that's an offshoot campaign of VelvetRevolution.us, which is an organization that I helped found. Uh, They filed a complaint in 2010 saying that the majority of the money that was being raised by Karl uh, Karl Rove's Crossroads GPS organization was actually being spent not on social welfare, but on campaigning, actual uh, direct campaigning for or against candidates. So that complaint was filed after the 2010 election, and then three years later, at the beginning of 2014, after three years, three years the FEC finally made its determination on whether or not Crossroads GPS should have instead filed as a political action committee rather than a 501c4 uh, during that 2010 election uh, and thus would have had to disclose its donors. In fact, the, uh, the career uh, investigators on the FEC found that, in fact, yes, a majority of the money that Karl Rove's Crossroads GPS had spent had, in fact, gone to politicking. The FEC's Office of General Counsel recommended taking further action against Rove and Crossroads, but Republicans on the FEC, the three FEC uh, commissioners, the commissioners are uh, there's six commissioners, three Democrats uh, or at least three Democratic appointees, three Republican appointees. The Republicans block them from doing so by voting against any further action against Rove and Crossroads. That left a 3-3 tie. And then when there's a tie on the uh, Federal Elections Commission, nothing happens. The 3-3 uh, tie uh, commission vote meant that no action would be taken in that complaint that was filed by a number of groups, including Public Citizen, Campaign Legal Center, Center for Media and Democracy, and the Protect Our Elections group. 
Well, with the FEC saying, nope, we're not going to take any further action, case dismissed, there is a right for those groups to sue in court to force the FEC to go back and look at that case. That's where we were back in 2014. And I hate to say it, but uh, I think we're a year and a half later. We are still at that place, although there has been some movement, a little bit of movement in the last couple of weeks in this case. To talk about all of this, I'm going to bring on our friend Craig Holman of PublicCitizen.org. He's a government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizen's Congress Watch, which uh, champions consumer interest before the U.S. Congress and serves as a government watchdog. Find more information about them at Citizen.org. Craig uh, Holman, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Glad to be here, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, boy, I wish, uh, like I uh, said in the introduction, it, it's been a year and a half since we had you on the show to talk about this case, and I want to get into some of the details about what uh, Crossroads is alleged to have done. But a year and a half later, some we're going on three major election cycles since 2010. This thing ain't moving very fast, is it, Craig? <laughs> It is not moving very fast, but finally uh, it's it started picking up a little bit. I want to highlight what the problem is, yeah. and you've already addressed this, and that is the fact that the Federal Elections Commission is an entirely dysfunctional agency. It is the most dysfunctional agency on Capitol Hill. And, you know, every time it deadlocks on any kind of vote, that means no decision has been taken. And as a result, uh, we have lost so much when it comes to disclosure of, of the money in politics and lost the enforcement of the campaign finance laws itself. You know, you highlighted Citizens United, which is one of the worst, worst decisions the Supreme Court has issued in, in decades. But it's not the sole problem. Uh, the Just as big of a problem when it comes to uh, enforcing our campaign finance laws mm -hmm. is the Federal Election Commission. When it cannot act and it cannot make a decision, we literally have no cop on the beat when it comes to money and politics. You know, the law is very clear that groups, even Karl Rove's group, Crossroads, GPS, any 501c4 or c6 has to disclose their donors if they make expenditures to influence our elections. The law is very clear on that. The problem is we have a federal election commission that will not apply the law. Uh, they let groups like Crossroads evade the law. And as a result, we are now being besieged with, uh, in the last election, was $300 million in dark money, money that influences our elections, but we have no idea where it came from. And that's, uh, yeah, well, that's it, something it, to but, keep in mind, because when, you know, you hear Hillary Clinton talking about a, a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, that uh, doesn't really have anything, uh, well, directly to do with the Federal Election Commission. We, I mean, there are there are campaign finance laws in place, uh, you know, that are separate from Citizens United. But if the uh, the cops, the Federal Election Commission, whose job it is to oversee those laws, if they don't actually take action, our problem isn't just Citizens United. It's the standing existing laws that are also not being enforced, correct? 
That is correct. Uh, the Federal Election Commission is so dysfunctional that even if we have good laws on the books, uh, the agency itself is not going to enforce those laws. However, if we did get a constitutional amendment to reverse Citizens United, mm -hmm. you know, that would provide citizens uh, with the means to challenge the Federal Election Commission in court. And so a constitutional amendment is indeed needed. Uh, however, we also have to try fixing this Federal Election Commission. Just to give you a little background as to what happened here. Yeah, please. Uh, the, federal the Federal Election Commission is a six-member commission with three Democrats, three Republicans. It used to work, believe it or not, even though any decision has to be made by four votes or more. Mm -hmm. It used to work. If you take a look through the history of the Federal Election Commission up to 2008, there were fewer than 2% of enforcement actions in which the agency deadlocked. It was functioning. What happened was in 2008, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell realized that he can't repeal the campaign finance laws, and he certainly can't convince the American public to oppose the campaign finance laws. But what he could do is select three Republican commissioners for the FEC who are committed to not enforcing the law. And that way, uh, we have literally have lost the cop on the beat. It went from less than 2% deadlock votes to 18% ever since 2008. And it's not a long, uh, well, it's not a long life of the Federal Election Commission. That was just put in place after Watergate, if I uh, understand correctly, uh, to sort of correct some of the, uh, well, uh, the pretty severe campaign issues that came up during Watergate. So they were working well for a few decades until Mitch McConnell decided to, to break it. Is that what you're saying, Craig Holman? That's exactly what happened. Just take a look at the deadlock votes, and we go from, you know, a yearly average of less than 2% prior to 2008 to 18% today. And it's consistent of every, year to year. Uh, the agency itself just keeps on deadlocking on key enforcement actions, and so it takes no enforcement action. Not only have we seen a huge, huge increase in deadlock votes, but also since nothing is being done, we're seeing far fewer cases ever even considered by the Federal Election Commission. So they're dealing with fewer issues and deadlocking and becoming immobilized on those few issues that are before it. Uh, and, and that's what's amazing to me, is that even when uh, the system works, it still takes years and years for it to work, you know, long after these uh, campaigns have actually ended. And now in the case of the FEC, the, the Democratic commissioner, commissioners, uh, two of the uh, women on there, FEC Chairwoman uh, Ann Ravel and Commissioner Ellen Weintraub, have said it has gotten so bad that it is, quote, worse than dysfunctional, and they are actually petitioning their own commission to take action in some of these cases. Are you able to uh, explain what this petition is? Because I think it's kind of unprecedented in the agency's 40-year history. They are petitioning themselves to take action. Is that correct? Absolutely unprecedented. It has never happened before. 
I mean, this shows how dysfunctional the Federal Election Commission is. Uh, when you've got the chairwoman of the FEC filing a petition with her own agency asking them to do its job. Uh, this is unprecedented. It, it is an act of desperation by Anne Ravel, who I know has grown increasingly frustrated uh, trying to get things done with the Federal Election Commission. Uh, she's just, she's, you know, just become so frustrated, she's actually filing a petition asking the agency to do its job. And uh, that will come up for a public notice on uh, on, th- on Thursday, June 18th. And that means uh, that so f- folks can... Uh, w- what happens when something comes up for uh, a public petition like that? The agency will post it as a petition for rulemaking, and after it gets posted, then they'll take public comments. Now, how they're going to deal with this is, is going to be anyone's guess. Quite frankly, I see the commission deadlocking 3-3 right. on Thursday when it comes to trying to deal with this petition. And I don't even know what that's going to mean. So that means they are petitioning themselves. It comes up for discussion uh, and, and, and public comment. And then the commissioners vote on it, uh, whether they should uh, take action or not. And we end up with the same deadlock we started with. That is probably going to happen. However, the rules are that the uh, FEC really isn't supposed to reject a petition for rulemaking. So, you know, what's going to happen if they do deadlock on this? Uh, I would expect the general counsel to say, well, that doesn't mean we don't get public testimony. Uh, It's going to get posted anyway. But it's going to be one interesting meeting Thursday. You know, I I also want to emphasize, I mean, the irony of this this agency that deadlocks on everything. You had brought up uh, the case that that we filed in Mm -hmm. court on Crossroads GPS. Yeah. Uh, literally, the FEC deadlocked on enforcing the law against Carl Rove's Crossroads GPS. Mm-hmm. So we're taking the Federal Election Commission to court for dereliction of duty. Now, the funny thing, and why this case has been delayed for so long, is Carl Rove realized that if we were to win in lower federal district court, the FEC would probably deadlock on appealing the case, which means we would win. So Carl Rove has filed a complaint with the court uh, to intervene in the case so that he could appeal it if we win in lower court. where we've been stuck. Well, and, and so let me just review that math, because I think it's kind of uh, both confusing and mind-blowing. Uh, the complaint is filed with the FEC saying Carl Rove uh, is, is violating campaign law by spending millions. And I think back in 2010, it was uh, something like, uh, well, back then it was it was chump change. I think it was $20 million or something in, in uh, 2010. Uh, Craig, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the majority of which, he, he well, he raised, and then the majority of which was spent on campaigning illegally as found by the FEC's inspector general. And he recommends, uh, the inspector general's office recommends that they further investigate and consider fines and so forth against Karl Rove, but the committee deadlocks three to three. And so this case dismissed. And then you guys, the complainants, 
say, no, no, we want this to be reconsidered. We're going to go to a court of law. You go to a court of law in order to basically force the FEC to do their job. If you are successful then, uh, and the court eventually orders the FEC to go back and investigate this case, you're saying that the FEC has the right to say, no, no, we don't want to investigate. We want to appeal. But if they deadlock on that appeal, then the case must we move win. forward. You win, and they must then go we back. we win. Oh, man. <laughs> it, it, really is, it really is ironic. You know, on the Crossroads case itself, too, yeah. uh, when, we, when we filed our complaint in court, uh, two of the commissioners, Anne Revelle again and Ellen Weintraub, voted for the FEC not to even defend itself. Uh, and uh, however, you know, uh, for because the they didn't said, because okay, we we're going to do this be- because they did not agree that the FEC should defend itself. They they thought the FEC that you guys were right and that there should be an investigation. That's right, and the rationale that Ravel used is actually sound rationale. She argued that since we deadlocked, since the FEC deadlocked on the Crossroads case, no decision actually has been made. And so if they, there was no decision, there's no need to try to defend itself in courts. And that's where... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, however, Ravel did not carry the day. And then that's where Carl Rove steps in and says, hey... The uh, the FEC is half-heartedly defending itself in this case. Uh, we need to jump in. As a matter of fact, the judge in the case uh, uh, in this court, U.S. Court of Appeals just a, a week or so ago, Judge Janice Rogers-Brown, who wrote the decision, said, she quoted Aesop. She said, Aesop, an ancient, Greece, uh, an ancient Greek famous for his fables, once wrote, a doubtful friend is worse than a certain enemy. Recognizing that doubtful friends may provide dubious representation, we have often concluded that government governmental entity, entities do not adequately represent the interests of aspiring interveners. And the same holds true in this case. Therefore, the district court erred when it denied Crossroads, Crossroads' right to intervene uh, as of right. In other words, Crossroads now gets to come in and essentially defend the FEC for them because the court feels that the FEC won't uh, adequately defend itself in this case, correct? That is correct. And so now Carl Rove and Crossroads have filed as interveners, so the case uh, resumes. Uh, probably we're going to have oral arguments in about a month or so before the federal district court. And, and uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. And this, you know, well, underscoring the amount of years this takes, uh, before I get to that, just, just pointing out, you know, we've been talking on this program the last couple of weeks about Jeb Bush who's running around raising huge sums of money uh, and not declaring himself as a candidate. Uh, clearly, he's a candidate. Clearly, he's raising money. Clearly, in uh, not declaring as a candidate and therefore not disclosing all of the, you know, who's giving him these millions of dollars, he is violating the election law. But it seems like he knows, and the other candidates, you know, Scott Walker is doing this as well. Uh, it seems like they know that what they're doing is illegal, but they know that it wouldn't, it would be the FEC who would need to come in here and say, hey, you guys need to declare. 
right? Are, are they simply just assuming, hey, FEC is broken. It can't do its job. We can violate whatever law we want. They can't come in and fix it. Or at best, even if they do, it will be years and years and years down the line. That is exactly what's going on, Brad. Uh, every every candidate now knows there is no cop on the beat when it comes to campaign finance laws, and they can do essentially anything that they want. Uh, you know, it, it, the law is fairly clear when it comes to testing the waters. If a candidate raises or spends five thousand dollars in an effort to test the waters on whether or not they're they're a viable candidate, mm-hmm. at that point they become a candidate and are subject to the contribution limits and disclosure requirements. Mm-hmm. Jeb Bush raises spent tens of millions of dollars uh, fully realizing that the Federal Election Commission simply wasn't going to do anything. And they did not. You know, we do have one fallback, and that is the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice can take over these cases if it becomes criminal in nature. And, uh, you know, we've been encouraging the Department of Justice to take over this Jeb Bush case and, and all the others that are testing the waters and avoiding filing as candidates. Uh, the Department of Justice has stepped in on one case that was just recently resolved, uh, the Tyler Harbor coordination case where this was the campaign manager for a candidate and simultaneously set up a super PAC for the same candidate. <laughs> the Department of Justice stepped in there and uh, won their case against Tyler Harbor. Nowhere was the Federal Election Commission to be found. Well, what's the holdup for the Department of Justice stepping in in these other cases? I mean, I'm looking back at this case you, that you guys are fighting. The public citizen is is trying to move forward, <clears throat> move forward almost three election cycles later. This has taken years. I mean, even in a case where the existing election law works correctly, uh, I, it seems like your case underscores how broken it is even if it works correctly, because this is you're talking about campaign violations from 2010. We're almost six years past that campaign. We've had since then three major cycles, 2012, 2014, maybe even 2016. Um, and it will all have occurred without unenforced statutes. I mean, this seems to me an emergency situation for the Department of Justice. What's the holdup with them coming in and how can we the people help this along? We have made direct requests of the Department of Justice to step up to the plate, uh, pointing out that the Federal Election Commission simply isn't going to do this, and as a result, we are now entering the most expensive, messiest election cycle we've ever seen. We have asked the Department of Justice to step up. Uh, it's They're reluctant to do so, partly because they've never had to do this before. Uh, the Federal Election Commission really should be the agency enforcing the campaign finance law. And secondly, for the Department of Justice to step in, it has to be criminal in nature. That means a knowing and willful violation. However, many, many of these uh, cases, especially, you know, when we're talking about testing the waters by Jeb Bush, he knew what he was doing, and this was knowing and willful. This is a case in which the Department of Justice could step in, and uh, we continue to ask them to do so. Craig, will this case, the the one that, that you're filing, that you're still fighting uh, from 2010, 
<clears throat> will it be resolved uh, if it does move forward finally again after a year and a half sort of waiting for this uh, intervention fight to be uh, figured out? Will it or can it even be resolved at this point before the 2016 election uh, in any way? Or is this going to continue running through the 2016 election cycle and beyond as we fight about a 2010 election? It's not going to be resolved by the 2016 election cycle. Uh, even if we got a favorable ruling from the federal district courts, uh, a prompt ruling from the federal district court, uh, now Carl Rove can appeal the case. And uh, so it will not be resolved in time for, in time for this election. You know, even if the court did direct the Federal Election Commission to reconsider itself, what is the FEC going to do? They're just going to deadlock again. Uh, so, in, you know, we, we've got to try getting the courts and the Department of Justice directly stepping in and taking over where the Federal Election Commission fails. You're saying that even if the courts order the FEC to do their job and to further investigate this matter, going back to 2010, that even if they further investigate it, come up with further damning evidence that uh, Karl Rove knew exactly what he was doing, that he violated the law w back in 2010, that that matter comes before the same commissioners all over again and they have to decide w w whether or not to ding, whether or not to fine Karl Rove, and that if they deadlock on that, then the whole thing goes away again? Yes, it's a, a very frustrating circle. Uh, we've seen this happen over the issue of coordination. Uh, the Federal Election Commission came up with a very, very weak definition of coordination, which is why you're seeing all the candidates setting up their own super PACs. They're not supposed to be doing that. You're talking about coordination uh, between a, a candidate and these super PACs and, and how they work together during a campaign. That's correct. And, you know, obviously all the super PACs are coordinated with the candidates. And, in fact, literally about half of these super PACs will only support one single candidate. I mean, it's not as if they're these general, you know, PACs. Uh, they're set up by a candidate, and they support that candidate. And they're closely coordinated. Uh, because the FEC came up with such a weak definition of coordination, they have been sued twice where the federal district court has twice sent it back to the FEC saying, come up with a better definition of coordination. And we're still stuck in that spiral. We, we've got to have the courts take over. When it comes to, like, Crossroads GPS, I really don't want the court to direct the FEC to reconsider. I want the court stepping in and saying Crossroads GPS is a political committee and therefore must register. Is there, is there a way that that can happen? Can the courts do that? Uh, the court could do that, but, you know, it isn't something the courts are inclined to do. They tend to defer to administrative agencies to do the right thing. But if we can impress upon the courts that this Federal Election Commission is incapable, uh, perhaps the court can just step in on its own. Uh, uh, one last question before I let you go, Craig. And by the way, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd have you back on. I saw this movement in the case that uh, Karl Rove was finally going to be allowed to defend the uh, FEC, and that meant this was going to move forward. So you were going to bring all kinds of good news. Uh, you, you have brought no good news, Craig. You are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Brad, yeah. but, you know, right now in the 2016 elections, 
nothing's going to save us in uh, the 2016 elections, but perhaps afterwards we can fix this mess. One Okay, one question that I'm going to have for you here uh, before I let you go. Isn't the pro- doesn't this problem go back to the Internal Revenue Service itself, the IRS that has long failed uh, in its statutory requirement uh, by allowing these groups to file as nonprofit social welfare organizations, so-called 501c4s, in the first place? That they're not supposed to do that. These social welfare groups uh, that get to hide their donors for a while, they are supposed to, according to the law, they are supposed to exclusively exist for social welfare purposes versus what the uh, IRS has come to regard as primarily exist for social welfare. Therefore, if they do a little social welfare and they do a lot of campaigning, that's fine. I mean, doesn't the problem come back to the actual tax law? They found this way to hide these donors inside the IRS tax law. And isn't that what that whole fight was about a year or two ago when uh, the IRS was actually trying to figure out if these groups, both conservative and progressive, were actually social welfare groups or if they were, uh, you know, secretly nothing more than campaign committees? That is part of the problem. Uh, We do have uh, the campaign finance law that Mm -hmm. requires even 501c4s or anyone that makes electioneering expenditures to have to disclose where the money came from for those electioneering expenditures. Now, the problem is the FEC won't enforce the campaign finance law, so we now take a look at the IRS. Well, the IRS could actually shut down these fraudulent groups like Crossroads GPS and say, you know, you're you're not a social welfare organization. You're a political organization, and therefore should register as a Section 527. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lawsuit filed against the IRS for the IRS because the IRS wasn't uh, stepping up to the plate. However, the IRS now under Koskinen has uh, has begun a whole new po- uh, rulemaking process where they're, they are reevaluating uh, their definition of what is a social welfare organization. So public citizen has tempor- temporarily withhold, withheld our uh, lawsuit against the IRS, awaiting to see if the IRS actually comes up with a clearer definition. Well, that will be very interesting, because it seems to me the uh, Republicans did a pretty good job on that IRS situation by... You know, asking the inspector general to, to look into it. Well, the IRS is asking all these questions of these uh, conservative, so-called conservative groups. What's up with that? Yeah, the uh, inspector general came back and said, yeah, they are asking all these questions of conservative groups and didn't point out that, you know what, they were also asking all of these questions of non-conservative, of progressive groups. But boy, they did a PR hit job on that and on the IRS and the Obama administration Seems like they fell for it. They're scared to death to do anything at the IRS. So I don't know that anything will happen there, but I I share your hope that the new uh, IRS Commissioner Koskinen actually uh, reviews what's going on with the the way uh, 501c4s are are specified, and maybe there'll be some break in the... uh, in the in the waves there uh craig holman always uh clair- incredibly clarifying to talk to you even as it's incredibly depressing but i won't hold that against you <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's a pleasure to be able to share the news as to what's going on here on Capitol Hill. Thank you, Craig. I suspect we'll be talking again soon. Craig Holman, government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizens Congress Watch. Get more information on them and the work that Craig does, the important work that uh, he and the entire organization does at citizen.org. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Brad. Take care. You bet. Yes, you see, not all lobbyists are evil. (laughs) There's one of them who ain't. All right, running late as usual, so we're going to take a quick break and come back with a bit more of your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks again to Craig Holman of Public Citizen. And just so that uh, you know, uh, Democrats are by no means all clear in this in this uh, fight at the FEC, this mess that we have going on at the FEC. I want to point out one of those commissioners. So what what Mitch McConnell did back in 2008 was basically he stacked the FEC, not with election commissioners that would actually enforce the law, but election commissioners that he knew on the Republican side would basically allow them to get away with anything they wanted to, as we've discussed uh, over the past uh, few minutes with Craig Holman. But uh, Democrats have a part in this as well. One of those commissioners is a woman by the name of Carolyn, or Caroline, I'm not even sure how you say it, Caroline, Caroline Hunter. She's one of the three FEC commissioners. Just to give you an idea of who these Republicans are, she's a GOP operative. She was a, uh, a Bush-appointed Republican commissioner on first on the—actually, um, she was appointed uh, to the FEC uh, by Bush. But before that, she was on the Elections Assistance Commission. How did she get to be on the Elections Commission Assistance? Well, uh, Elections Assistance Commission, this goes back to uh, 2000 and was it seven? I believe it was, uh, 2007. Guy by the name of Hans von Spakovsky had been recess appointed by George W. Bush uh, to the FEC, to the Federal Elections Commission. And uh, Barack Obama at the time, when he was a senator, and Senator Russ Feingold at the time said, no, you can't reappoint Hans von Spakovsky. He's a GOP operative on the Federal Elections Commission. He's the guy who used to be an operative inside the DOJ. He's the guy who allowed the very first photo ID voting restriction to go into effect in places like Georgia and Indiana, even though... The career attorneys at the Department of Justice said this would uh, have a discriminatory effect on minority voters. But George W. Bush just waited until Congress was out of out of session, appointed Hans von Spakovsky, this oper- this operative. And then when it came time to permanently put Hans on there and, and have Congress vote in favor of him, Barack Obama said no, and they blocked it, Obama and Feingold. So good for them for doing so. But what they did was eventually allowed... As a deal, okay, we'll withdraw our objections against Hans von Spakovsky, and this will allow Caroline Hunter to go through. Now, when Caroline Hunter was uh, allowed onto the FEC, it was by unanimous consent. 
There was no vote. There was, you know, no hearings uh, of this uh, woman under uh, sec- uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein when she oversaw the relevant committee. It was a deal. Instead of Hans von Spakovsky, we'll let people like Hunter go in. And nobody vetted her, even though she is the one who defended the RNC's attempt to use a list of over 23,000 names for challenges against voters in the 2004 presidential election in Ohio. That's right. She was one of the women uh, involved with the RNC who was keeping people from voting, who was planning on challenging people at the polls in 2004. The infamous caging list that uh, our friend uh, Greg Palast helped get out there and and publicize. Uh, Caroline Hunter was part of that effort. And instead of blocking her as well, the Democrats took their victory. They said, OK, Hans von Spakovsky, uh, he's not going to go on, so we'll allow uh, anyone else you want. And that's what they did. And they basically allowed these three commissioners who sit there today and who block all enforcement of federal campaign finance laws. This stuff matters. This happened years ago. The Democrats looked the other way, let it happen in a deal, didn't fight. And this is what we got. This mess that started uh, at least as long as 2010 and continues today, right now in 2016, with nobody at the FEC willing to enforce campaign finance laws. So Republicans did it, but Democrats allowed it. All right, we got to get out. My thanks today, as always, to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to my guest, Craig Holman, of Public Citizen. Check out their work at citizen.org. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as always, download it at bradblog.com and at iTunes and elsewhere. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, find me on the Twitters and the Facebook at TheBradBlog and, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.